Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Carlos Flores, director of the National Australian Built Environment Rating System, or Neighbors for short. We talked about the 15-year history of Neighbors in Australia and how it has literally transformed the real estate industry by giving each stakeholder a core business reason why they should care about sustainability. Then we talked about how other countries can learn from this case study and what the future holds for rating systems like this. This was a fascinating conversation, and I had a smile on my face almost the whole time. Without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Carlos Flores. Hello, Carlos. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, James. My name is Carlos Flores. I'm the director of uh, a program called the National Australian Built Environment Rating System, or Neighbors. Um, I'm just really excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you. So we met a couple of weeks ago and I'm very grateful whenever I get a nice introduction like this. I always like to thank the person that introduced us. So thanks, Dan. Dan's out there somewhere, uh, avid listener. Um, so how'd you get into the buildings industry, Carlos? I got into this industry by accident, actually. Uh, I was born and raised in, in, in Chile in, in South America. I did mechanical engineering because I was really interested in energy and climate change. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. A little bit after the Kyoto Protocol, so climate change was a, a, a big topic, nowhere near as big as it is today. It felt really big at the time. And I got into energy policy first. So I was working on energy efficiency, but I wasn't thinking so much about buildings. It was a lot about uh, industry and energy generation and how do we supply reliable energy to industries. It was along those those lines. This was back in Chile where I was born and raised. And later when I migrated to Australia, this is going back into um, 2009, I actually became, I was looking for work. I was I just got there as a recently emigrated professional. I got a job with neighbors for three weeks, a short contract with neighbors. And that's how I landed in buildings. I just I was wanted to work in renewables at the beginning. I got this job for three weeks that turned into six months, that turned into a decade working in buildings. And, and a few months into it, I was just really enamored with the, the building sector. I just realized how big it it is in terms of sustainability. That is the, the biggest user of energy, the biggest emitter of carbon, the biggest user of water on, on cities, the biggest emitter of waste across all sectors. So if you want to make a difference in sustainability, that's where you want to go. You want to go into buildings and, and drive, make a difference across many, many sectors of the economy that operate within four walls. That's brilliantly put. I love that. I totally agree. That's how I stumbled into it too. I was like, I'm, I'm vaguely interested in sustainability and I have no idea how the economy works, but buildings seem really cool. And then you start like peeling back the layers of the onion. You're like, oh, this is, this is massive. So I love how you put that. What's it like being a Chilean in Australia? That seems rare. <laughs> it is. It, it is rare. There's, there's actually a, you know, there's a, there's a Chilean community in Sydney. So it's not, it's not inexistent, but it's, it's, it's a really interesting place to be a South American in general, because historically Australia has had a lot of migration. It's a, it's a country of migrants. I think the, I was reading a stat recently that in Sydney, which is the, the, the largest city, it's about 5 million people where I live, about 50% of people who live in Sydney today 
were not born in Australia. Okay. And that kind of tells you just the volume of migration to Australia is, is very is very big. Um, uh, but that migration hasn't been from, from Latin America for the most part. It's been from the UK, from China, from Southeast Asia. And so you, if you're a Latin American in, in here, this, you, do, you are subject to like just some really interesting stereotypes, but almost all of them are very positive. So people expect you to play guitar and they expect you to dance and they expect you to play soccer. And fortunately, all those three things are things that I do do as part of my upbringing. So I, I find that in general, it's been really great. And because it's a country of migrants, there is uh, a lot of tolerance for my accent and for uh, people who are used to experiencing lots of different cultures. And we do have issues like, like all countries. And it's not like racism does not exist in Australia. It, it does exist. But there is a very, very significant percentage of the population that are uh, very understanding of migration in, in, in a great part because they're migrants themselves or maybe their parents were, or maybe their grandparents were, but, but many, many people can trace, you know, part of their life or their heritage to recent migration from, from somewhere. And that makes it a, quite a great place really to be, to be a migrant. Awesome. And before we unpack neighbors and get into the real topics of this podcast, we must get to my curiosity. Who's your favorite soccer team? I think that's a really difficult question. I'm going to be on the record for this as well. So back home, it's the easiest uh, a, a way for me to answer this. It's a team called Colo Colo, which is the biggest Chilean club. And that's my team. And okay. overseas and internationally, it's really is something that changes over time. I've always been a fan of Barcelona from when I was little in the you know late 90s with the, with the Figo and the, the original Ronaldo days. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with Barcelona for now, even though this is uh, not the greatest time to be a Barcelona fan and it won't be for a few years but yeah that's 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 my team awesome all right let's jump into neighbors and I have to give another shout out here so Tyson Suter who's Australian and is now gone around the world doesn't live in Australia anymore he told me I don't know probably like a year and a half ago like dude you have to look into neighbors and and dig into what that's doing in Australia so thanks to him as well first like what is, what is neighbors let's start there yeah so neighbors is a it's a certific it's a rating tool it's a rating scheme for for buildings in sustainability and we we certify buildings on basically four areas so energy or energy efficiency and carbon water uh, waste performance or so waste and recycling and indoor environment quality and the thing about neighbors is that it's, it's a star rating so from zero to six stars if you're three stars it means that you're using an average amount of energy, if you're doing a neighbor's energy rating, an average oh, amount of energy okay. compared to, you know, a similar office, if you have an office building in the same climate zone operating for the same hours. So three stars means you're an average performer, average compared to your peers in very similar buildings. If you're doing, a, you know, if you're one star, it means you're using about 75 or maybe 80% more energy consumption. So quite a bit more. You can also be zero stars because as you may know, there is no limit to how bad a building can be. And some buildings can okay. be very bad, but also they can be very good. So six okay. stars in neighbors means you need to use about 80% less energy consumption than than a, a the average building in your market. To get into six stars is not straightforward. It actually requires great technology, great management, and a team that really wants it. So often it takes years to actually get all the way there. The reference point then is all the other buildings in the country or the reference point is some baseline, historical baseline? 
the reference point is all the buildings in the country. So when we create a new neighbors rating tool, and we are at the moment, by the way, so we are expanding neighbors into the industrial building sector. So things like warehouses and cold stores and, and the, the, the cold change, basically. We actually gather a ton of data before we create the rating to create benchmarks. So okay. if we're thinking, you know, what is the what is the average amount of energy use for a, a cold storage facility that is located in the north of Australia, which is very, it's a, it's a tropical zone. So it's very hot. And how does that change if we move that to Tasmania, which is actually quite cold. It's like the Northern United States. So what is the impact of climate for a cold, um, a, a cold storage facilities? Well, the answer is, Let's go and collect a lot of data and see, is that 1% difference or is it 25% difference? Well, we, we just let the data tell us. Interesting. Okay. And then how does water and waste work? It, it, does it boil all up into one star rating or are there separate star ratings for the water and the waste? It's a good question. We actually have separate star ratings for all of them. Okay. So water works pretty much in the same way. You, you measure 12 months of water consumption and then we use that to, to place the building on the on the scale, depending on you know how much they're using against similar buildings. And there's a, and it's the same for waste. I think the, the the thing interesting to reflect on that is that that's not the norm in sustainability schemes. A lot of the ones that work across more than just energy and carbon, they aggregate everything into a single result. And, and there's lots of schemes like that. There's a lead in the US and Briam in, in the UK and Europe and, and Green Star in Australia. And I think those, those schemes are great. We work very closely with Green Star, which is the, the Australian version uh, of, of those sort of aggregator sustainability ratings. But I think there's something to be said for actually having separate indicators. And when do you, and, and you know, if, if you're, if, let's just talk about like energy and water just to, to keep the comparable simple, but there are things that you can do that will help you reduce energy and carbon, but you will use more water consumption. And the best example of that is, uh, is wet cooling towers, right? So you're, you're saving energy by actively using uh, water and putting the water in the atmosphere. And so that's, that's great if you're trying to reduce carbon but it's not so great if you actually have water issues and like in a place like California in the US or almost everywhere in, in Australia. And on the other hand, you could use you know dry cooling towers, which means they use no water, which is great for water efficiency, but actually it means that you're using a lot more energy. So hmm. I think our approach to that, instead of aggregating them into a single indicator, let's actually you know show that there is a tension between those two things. If we want to be very good at energy efficiency, and water efficiency at the same time, then you know, regardless of what cooling towers you choose, you might need to look for other areas in your building to compensate for the fact that you're using more water. Can we use less water elsewhere then if we still wanna be water efficient? So we're trying to make that uh, more transparent um, okay. by having different star ratings. Fascinating. All right, so when did this start and why did it, why did whoever created it, create it? Yeah, so this is um, way back in time, James. It, it neighbors started around 1997, which is 24 years ago. I was in uh, high school, so I was not the creator of Neighbors, as you can imagine. And it started by it started really as a, as a very small program uh, back in the 90s. But what happened over time is that over the first two or three years, the key principles uh, that we still use today were kind of defined. And I think maybe the most important of them is that somebody 
back 22, 23 years ago, made the great decision that neighbors needed to be not based on features, which is how most rating tools work even today. So we don't certify a building based on, you know, what kind of windows do you have? Single glazing, double glazing, or is the frame made of aluminum or is it, or more insulating uh, material? Or do you have, how many millimeters of insulation do you have? How many life fittings do you have? Do you have solar panels or not? We don't do any of that. We actually go straight into the meter. Are you using more or less energy than comparable buildings? And that, what that means, that design decision, is that the only way to get a better neighbor's rating is using less energy or using less water or producing less waste. There's no other way. So it actually encourages everyone not to create a lot of features just to get a better rating. If you're going to install the feature, then it needs to work. Otherwise, you're not going to get any recognition. Uh, but it also meant that a lot of people have looked for a lot of other ways to reduce energy and water and, and becoming more sustainable that is not about doing big retrofits. It's about doing a lot of small things on a daily basis, turning things off when no one needs it. Like a lot of those things do get a lot of recognition in neighbors because if they save you 20% energy consumption, you're going to get to the next star rating. And to me, that, that was a very late in the night. It's a lot of foresight. It was about the same time that the, the, the US, which is the only country really that has a scheme that is about this long, also started in 1997. So I always wonder if we were talking to each other back in the 90s. But the US, the Energy Star program in buildings is also based on, on real energy consumption for 12 months. It doesn't communicate in terms of stars. But in many other ways, is a, is, is a sister program to Neighbors, and maybe the closest program that we have in, in the world. And we actually meet with them every month just because we have so many things in common and so many things to, to, to learn from each other. So maybe going back to that branch, there's a bit of a side branch, James, uh, which you'll probably see a lot in this, in this interview, but is that when, once we made that decision, a lot of things became very clear that we needed to make uh, design changes to, to Neighbors, so we should build around the fact that it's based on metering. So it meant that we needed a standard, like a really high quality standard that was publicly available and then people could follow, you know, what's included in neighbors and how do I account for it and how do I set targets? So we created a standard around that. And then a year or two later, we realized that the self-reported standard gives you very mixed results when it comes to quality. So a couple of years later, we realized we actually need trained assessors that know how to use this methodology and we need auditing. So every building that is certified in the neighbor is actually audited by somebody. And, and, and this is part of the things that we do as a team. And those bare bones, all of which were set in the late 90s, are still the core of how Neighbors works 21, 22 years later. Fascinating. I'm perceiving there to be a difference between Neighbors and Energy Star, though. So the way I understand it, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, and someone will if you don't, uh, trust me. Um, Energy Star, their reference point is CBEX data, which is Commercial Building Energy Consumption Survey. And it only happens every couple of years. And so the results only come out every several years. And so you could be like right now, for instance, if you were to go on Energy Star, your reference building would probably be based on the 2013 survey. So it's like nine year, 10, whatever that is, eight years old at this point, right? So you're not actually being compared to your peers. It's a big myth. I think people assume they're being compared to their peers, but you're not, you're being compared to your peers that responded to that survey eight years ago, right? So is that is there a difference there between? I think there's a, there's a quite a significant difference, but we, uh, to, to begin with, 
we would love to have a survey like CBEX in, in Australia. So I think having that is just, it's just brilliant. Okay. Yeah. And, and because we don't have that, we have to design everything we do. We have to work around the fact that we don't have that database. Okay. Uh, so I think that's a, just a really great thing to, uh, for, for you to have. Um, I think the, the, so Neighbors works a bit differently in the sense that we actually do not change our scale once we release the scale. We don't update okay. what the average is every year or every couple of years. And, I, and, and that's by design. So the, what we're trying to do is to create something that billings can set targets at the individual level or at the portfolio level, a target for this year and for next year and for three years for now, 2025 and by 2030. Um, okay. And most of the big portfolios in Australia have that. And so instead of changing the star rating, if we change the star rating all the time, people really struggle to be able to set targets that you don't know what they're going to be in, in the future. Yeah. So instead of doing that, we kind of change the meaning of the stars. So we, we call three stars average today, but the reality is that when we released this, the star scale, it was 2.5 stars. And now mm -hmm. we call that below average. And, and, and to be honest, the average is really moving now into 3.5 stars. So we might change the meaning of that again. But to me, the, the, um, it's very easy to get into like a theoretical debate how star ratings should be changed. And, but the reality is that star ratings and programs like Neighbors are a means to an end. And the end is not to have the best, most perfect scale in the world. The end is to drive deep energy consumption, carbon emissions, and water reduction at scale across whole markets as fast as possible. So totally. if we're actually achieving that, um, then the scale is working well. To me, that's the, the most important yeah. uh, KPI for a scale. If people have uh, major issues and they don't trust the scale, that often translate into the market not moving as fast. And then we'll definitely have to do something about that. But that approach of keeping the scale fixed and allow the market to just move towards the upper bands of the scale is actually worked really well in the last decade. And probably we'll get into that in, in, in a few minutes. Yeah, the word market. We're gonna we're gonna dig into that word market real quick before we do that. Though, what types of buildings or verticals does neighbors rate today? Right. So the the answer is that we are expanding to expanding to all sectors, all the big buildings in 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 the market. We don't cover all of them yet, but we have a roadmap to expand to one or two new sectors every year. Okay. Um, currently, we work uh, with offices, shopping centers, data centers, hotels, hospitals. And, and, and a few other sectors, but we are also expanding to say senior care, I think is, is called in the US and Australia is called the residential aged care system. And we're also expanding to industrial buildings. Currently, we are going to expand to schools and big box retail and, and a few other sectors as well. Okay. So I think that by the end of 2024, neighbors really should cover uh, the majority of the big sectors that make up maybe 80% of or, or 90% of the built environment. With that context set, I really want to dig into this story that you told me about when we first met. And then, you know, Tyson told me about a long time ago of what I would call market transformation because of the rating system. And it sounds like there's been market transformation that's happened specifically in offices and maybe also in retail, but it, maybe it's happening in all the verticals that you just talked about. I call this, so when I teach the foundations course, I call this there, there, like there needs to be a, a non-energy business, like core business reason for people to care about technology, to care about sustainability. And this is a perfect example of a non-energy 
core business reason to care being created out of a sustainability rating. So let's start this off by just talking about like the way things were before Neighbors was created, what, 15 years ago, right? Before this transformation started, what was it like? Yeah. So by the way, I love the way you frame the the need for non-energy drivers to drive sustainability. And I could not agree anymore. And I think that, that that's strongly be my experience that if you think about this energy consumption is only you know one percent sometimes less than one percent a couple of sectors where it's a bit bigger than that but for the most part a lot of building companies are not going to go bankrupt because they're inefficient it's not it's actually just going to be a bleep on on the bottom line compared to other much bigger drivers in the sectors so if you want to you want to tackle climate change and you want to see societal change in energy efficiency and a lot of the companies investing the time to realize the the opportunities we've been talking about for four decades, but a lot of people that don't pursue, if you want to see that kind of change, you need to tap into drivers that are stronger than just, you know, reducing 10% of your 1% of your cost. It needs to be a lot stronger than that. I think if we go back 15 years ago in most uh, property companies did not have a sustainability team. I think it's the most notable and noticeable thing that you see walking into the office. Who is the sustainability manager? There isn't one. There isn't a team and there isn't a manager. Uh, there would have been an operations manager and that person's role, energy efficiency would have been part of that, but it would have been a, a side job. And yeah. much more importantly, it would have been, um, you know, is the same person that is in charge of the facilities need to work well and our clients need to be happy. So, and that is obviously core business for an office company. So this would have been a, a you know, a less important secondary KPI that you would have done on a part-time capacity. I think that's like very noticeable. And, and that is that building owners create demand for services in the sector. So if they don't have somebody or a team or the interest enough to, to actually drive this, it means that the size of the energy efficiency sector was a lot smaller. And it means that the facility management profession, they didn't environmental KPIs for the most part because the owners weren't asking for that. So it means that they, just the number of professionals with a lot of experience in this space was just significantly smaller. It's not that it didn't exist. It's been there for, for decades, but it was very, very small compared to now. And to me, that's like the, the, the most visible thing, 2005, where is, the, where is everybody? Where is the sustainability sector? What happened to it? I think that's the first uh, impression that you will get, especially if you were in the Australian market today, going back, just yeah. like, where is everybody? Totally. And so I think it's fair to say that sustainability was not connected to the core business in any way back then. Yeah, I think very, very fair to say. Even in the leaders in sustainability, they weren't really leading uh, in, a, in, a, in a very meaningful way back in 2005. Totally. All right. So let's talk about the ways in which Neighbors has added drivers and sort of created that core business reason to care. What was like the, the first step that happened? Right. So Neighbors has been, by 2005, it's been around for, you know, six or seven years by this point, but it wasn't driving, you know, whole of sector transformation. We were certifying the crown jewel of, uh, you know, a certain portfolio, the latest, the, the flashiest building. And by the way, even those often got poor ratings because they thought it was really good. And then in practice, they were using, you know, twice as much energy, right? So that's, yeah. that's a playing field in 2005. And what happened is, and maybe going into like, how do we get drivers beyond 
just energy costs? Are there other things that we can tap into in this market? And the governments of Australia, so Australia is a, is a federation, it's a bit like the US, where you have the state, eight states, and, and the Australian government. They came together because we are the biggest employers of people in the country then and now. It's about 20% of the Australian population works for a government at some, at some level. And because we're the biggest employer, we're also the biggest renter of office space. By, by, by large, if, just to give you a sense, in cities like Sydney and Melbourne, the big cities, 5 million people, about 20 to 25% of all the floor space is actually rented by governments. And that is from premium to, to mid-tier to, to, to the, you know, the lower quality, B-grade or C-grade buildings, the whole market. We are a big player on every segment of the market. We basically came together and said, um, let's use our procurement power to reward organizations that are doing something for the environment and give um, motivation for a lot of one, the ones that are not investing in energy efficiency and reducing emissions to actually do so. And we did it by basically putting requirements from this point onwards, if you want to lease, if you wanted to sign any lease in, in a building going forward, you need to have a neighbor's rating. You must have that before we actually sign that lease. It needs to meet a minimum energy efficiency requirement. And that back in the day was, was four stars and it's been growing over time, but, it's, but it, the, the concept has been applied the same. And what it meant, and the change was amazing and, and almost overnight because, because of what it means for a property company. This is tapping into a, a driver that is very deep rooted into the psychology of CFOs in, in, a pro, in an office uh, portfolio. What do you do in an office portfolio? You rent space. How do you lose a lot of money in property by having vacant space as a, as We've seen in a lot of conversations around COVID-19, right? So you don't want to have vacancies. And that's something that everybody in office companies really understand that that is, that's a problem. And what this policy meant was uh, if we're unwilling to invest on energy efficiency or reducing our emissions, we're going to miss out on 20% of the market going forward forever, like from this point forward. And it means that our portfolio might actually have 10, 15, 20% vacancies in the future if we actually don't do something about that. So the risk is, is, is huge for a property company, but also the reward is really big. So we saw a lot of them coming forward and saying, well, if we actually do invest in energy efficiency, we're going to put this asset that is going to be, you know, a tenant's going to move in 18 months. We're going to put that asset into a smaller portion of the market that is going to get 100% of that business from the government. And the business from the government is actually really, it's, it's really great. They're very, very long leases, much longer than most other companies. Uh, it's very secure because obviously if the government goes bankrupt, then we have much bigger problems than just that lease. And so they, it was a really big carrot like, and a really big stick at the same time. And we saw within about a year, the majority of the big portfolios in Australia certifying all their buildings overnight. Uh, not just the good ones, but also the ones, the not so good ones, the ones that were getting zero stars or one star, the whole portfolio. And then we've seen that group of buildings just reacting and improving very fast and never stopping. It's been 15 years of that. Uh, within two years, almost every company had a sustainability manager. Some of them had a sustainability team of multiple people. They had targets by certain years. And a lot of that, the origin was a policy that really put energy efficiency on the map as a you know, big reward, big opportunity, big risk for the business, not just for the costs of energy use. Fascinating. So big lever, tenants that are government. Yeah, government. Fascinating. Okay, so that was phase one. What was, what was the next phase? Phase two was uh, what we call in Australia 
mandatory disclosure or, or just disclosure. It came in 2010. And, and just to see the context, by the time we got 2010, like five years after this government policy, we had about maybe 40, maybe even 50% of buildings participating in neighbors already on a voluntary capacity. So nobody was, was obliged to get a neighbor's rating, but they were doing so because of that policy. Uh, and the fact that by this point, they had their own motivations. A lot of them were really talking the sustainability talk by this point in 2010. And what happened then is that the, the Australian government mandated the use of neighbors for the disclosure of neighbors for financial transactions in offices. So if you want to, if you want to sell an office building, or if you want to rent a space inside of an office building, obviously renting is, is the, the most common of, of the two. Uh, if you want to do either of those, you must have a neighbor's rating before that. Otherwise, you cannot do the financial transaction. You must have that and you must make it public everywhere. You need to put it outside of your building when you're advertising it. You need to put it on any website where the space has been advertised. You need to put it on the lease with tenants. So it meant that you could not transact in the office market without actually disclosing and providing transparency on, am I doing better for the environment than other buildings in this market? And obviously what happened is that uh, in any market, you'll have some buildings that are leading and they're doing very well. And they were very happy that the results were being publicly used and they were looking pretty good. But the reality is that a lot of buildings had not done any work in sustainability or energy efficiency for decades. And a lot of them came into neighbors and they were zero stars or one star. This had a very, very poor score. And now it wasn't just something that they knew. A lot of them didn't know that, by the way. So it was a shock to them, first of all. Oh, wow, we're using a lot more energy than almost anyone else. A lot of people just don't know that even today in a lot of markets. But also the fact that their clients were going to know. And they were going to know before they were clients. So your, your, your presentation card for a client in the office market was, yeah, this building is beautiful, it's premium, great location, and terribly unsustainable. And that actually is enough to drive a portion of the market that really cares about that off. There's a lot of companies. Imagine today, every company had to walk in into, into a work environment and it, you knew and every employee knew that the building is very unsustainable. What percentage of your own employees will be unhappy with that? Like I, I'm, I, I believe quite a few and we've seen that in Australia as well. So that shock of actually having to show everyone that you your performance is terrible and you're using two maybe three times more energy than other buildings really drove the entire market into action so we've seen that was in 2010 and those group of buildings have been reducing in that decade between then and now 2021 they've reduced energy consumption by about 30% that is the entirety of the office market in Australia is not the leaders is every single building reducing energy consumption of what's like likely to be um, the fastest reduction of energy use and carbon emissions in any building sector in any country, that was last decade in the office market. And that policy was also the first of its kind in the world, like the first whole of disclosure across a whole market using a performance rating where the only way to get better is using less. And that, and again, that was another driver. And the driver is like the naming and shaming driver, as well as if I'm doing really well, everyone will know that I'm doing really well. And I can attract tenants that are actually looking for sustainability as part of the core ethos as a company as well. So that's been, that's, that's phase two. Uh, and the great thing about that, by the way, is that it produces so much data. We, I think Australia is, is probably the only country where we have 11 or 12 years of data of pretty much any building in that market for, for those wow. 12 years. And a lot of that data, by the way, is publicly available on our website. So if there's a lot of data geeks like me out there and you really want to analyze a lot of trends and, and a lot of that data you can download from, from the Navis website. Fascinating. All right, what's phase three then? 
Well, phase three is uh, not a driver that we orchestrated. So unlike the other two, there were policies that the government was working on. Phase three is a global trend, which is investment. And that's been going on also for, from, for the past decade, but it has been very strong in the last five years. And what it means is that there are a lot of investors that are actively looking into the energy performance of portfolios. And this is, by the way, particularly true for companies that are exposed to that. So if you're, if you're a private portfolio with one owner, you're not very um, exposed to, to, to investor drivers. But if you're a company that is listed on the, the Australian uh, stock exchange, you're, you, anyone can invest in your company. You can invest in that company, right? And it means that the, the price of your stock is really important. And the price of your stock is a, a function of how many people are willing to buy that stock. So we have seen a lot of interest from investors and not just interest, but real pressure uh, for better uh, sustainability indicators. And because Davis is a, is a certification system of your carbon footprint, your energy consumption, you compare against all the buildings in the market. It's got all the things that a lot of investors want to know. Like, I want it to be simple to understand. Are you one star or five stars? Almost anyone can engage in that kind of level of conversation. And number two, it allows them to track, well, are you doing better than last year? Because last year you have four stars. Why is your rating 3.5 stars now? And we have seen anecdotally, and this is the great thing as well about working at scale with all the buildings in, in this market is that we get all the hard data. So we have a lot of trends, but we also get a lot of the stories that go along with it. And that's a lot more anecdotal, but I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, uh, we had an issue with the controls in this building for two months, and it meant that it was just enough to drop us to the next uh, the next star rating because we used, you know, 4% more energy than last year. We dropped to 3.5 stars. And I got phone calls from a fund manager in Amsterdam about what are you doing? I'm investing in this portfolio and you're meant to get better and doing more about the fight against climate change, not less. And I think that that kind of pressure is actually really healthy pressure because yeah. it really drives a lot of people to think about the energy performance of your buildings. These are big machines with lots of parts. And if you want to become more sustainable, it's not just about doing a deep retrofit once every 50 years. That's not the way we actually you know, win against climate change. It is about looking at this every day. It's about smart buildings, it's about good management. It's about doing the, the little things. It's like, get, it's like, I see it as becoming an Olympian. You don't, get, you, don't, you don't win a gold medal at the Olympics by buying the most expensive shoes and shorts and t-shirts that you can. And then you think that's going to make you a gold medalist. That might be, good shoes might be an important part, but the most important part is that this is about doing the little things every day and working really hard. And the buildings that we see getting to six stars in, in neighbors, what all of them have in common is that they have good technology, not always the latest technology, by the way, but good technology and really good systems. Couple were really excellent management and those things always have to go together because you don't get to use 80% less energy use than most buildings in your market by doing nothing. You get to do it by doing the, the, the unsexy things. There's people who do night audits. And night audit is exactly what it sounds like. It's the least sexiest thing you can do in sustainability. Somebody goes into a building on Tuesday at two in the morning and they go, why is 25% of the building load operating? What, what's on? And literally go one by one, these six things, we need to change the controls. Can we do that tomorrow? And they do that. And then they go again the next season in the winter. And what is on on Wednesday or on Saturday at, at three in the morning? Well, this, you'd be surprised. Lots of things are on on Saturday that shouldn't be. Or, or, and those are the kind of things that a lot of people are doing to get to those star ratings. And 
I think those things cost often almost nothing. Like the, that is much, much cheaper than doing a deep retrofit for the whole asset. And to me, that's been one of the most valuable lessons in, in, in working in, in, this, in a space where a star rating rewards reducing energy instead of installing specific features is that people get really creative on what can we do to actually reduce energy consumption. It's been a huge drive of analytics um, in the last few years, as, as you well know, and, and a lot of that has been well documented in your podcast. And, and the interesting thing about that trend is that in Australia is very, very focused on how do we actually maintain or improve the star rating? So it's looking at a lot of those small opportunities every day. Some yeah. companies, what they do is um, they take, you know, they, they look at data from last week, for example, and they go, last week, you actually used, you know, 13% less than on a normal week. What did you do? Like it's literally just using data to get them to reflect, did you do something last week that maybe we could do on an ongoing basis? Like what, go back, trace your steps. Did you, oh, somebody went there on Wednesday, oh, there's a mechanical contractor went there on Wednesday. Talk to them and let's see what, what they did. And because of that, because you're looking at that and looking for those opportunities so actively, people can find, you know, 50, 60% reductions, not across one building, but across portfolios. And that is what a lot of the leaders in the Australian market look like today. If you look at companies like GBT, Lendlease, Texas, Stockland, and a lot of others, if you look at the sustainability reports going back 10 years, a lot of them have reduced energy use in it by 50% or 60%, which is almost unheard of in a single decade. And is for the most part, looking at doing the small things, better management, better technology. And instead of um, them spending a billion dollars on upgrades, it's not like that. It's actually a lower, much, much lower cost when you can master the, the attention and the time and you have the motivation, the drivers to actually improve those buildings. That's awesome. Night audits are one of my favorite things. So whenever I used to do hospital, I used to do a lot of hospital retro commissioning. And I'll be fascinated. What we would do, yeah, we what we would do, they'd be out of town. So you'd be staying in a hotel. So what we do is we would like, you know, spend all day at the hospital, do the normal stuff, do the audit, you know, that kind of thing, hanging out, different mechanical rooms, installing data loggers, those type of things. Then we would go out to dinner, have a few drinks, you know extend dinner until until it got to like 10 11 p.m before we went back to the hotel we would actually go back to the hospital and walk around and take different pictures right which which departments you know everyone thinks a hospital runs 24 7 actually know about 30 percent of the hospital runs 24 7 and so you I go around all the other places and yeah the night audits are an underused energy hack for sure 100 percent. that's so fascinating you've done i didn't know that you've that you've done that in the past. And I think yeah. the, the, the fascinating things, I, I, we work with a lot of people that do night audits. And if you're doing one, you get to see a place that is very familiar that most people have seen. Most people have been to an office or, or a hospital in their lives, um, mm -hmm. but in ways that you, no one's ever seen. When you walk through an office at night, it's so different and it's so unusual. If you work through a hospital when there's no one there, it's massive sprawling hospitals that have been built through... 10 extensions over the last 40 years and they have you know 16 different bms's like, like slightly exaggerating but some of them are just uh, very disjoint really big disjointed uh, sort of beasts and getting to see that at night is just such a fascinating concept because it teaches you a lot about how buildings really operate in practice and also a lot of the bad things that, they, that can happen in buildings you see them at night when they shouldn't be happening and they're happening yeah. anyway 
Yeah. And all the reasons why the, the next morning conversation was always the best. Cause it was like, did you know that this runs 24 seven and no one knew and then unpacking the reason why that is and like getting to the reason, like the root cause of it, you, you uncover a million different reasons why things are running 24 seven. Anyway. Yeah. And you know, I think they, no, totally. And, and I think the, 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 that example about things running for a long time and people not knowing is just so common uh, that it's so common that I, I, I am happy to say this on record that I would say the majority of buildings everywhere have things that are running when they're shooting at night, like the great majority, significantly more than 50%, maybe even 80, maybe even 90%. Uh, yeah. That is just how common it is and how underutilized night audits are as a, as a tool. And we've seen, by the way, it's not just in energy. We've seen this in water. Water is even worse because uh, water t- tends to be a lot more inexpensive in a lot of places, not everywhere. It's mm-hmm. very inexpensive in Australia. And it means that people just pay less attention to it. And we've had lots of people doing a, a water rating, like a neighbor's water rating for the first time. And then they get zero stars and they're really angry. And then they realize they had a leak going into that didn't go into the building. So it wasn't visible, but it was in their meters so going straight into the ground. And they've probably had it for like three or four years. Uh, and often this is a, the one example I'm thinking about now is a really high profile building that was in, in Sydney that was built to be very sustainable at the time. They were trying to make it one of the most sustainable in the world a few years ago. And there was a water leak that was invisible. And then you did a rating and then the questioning about why do zero stars, you're not even on the scale, outside of the scale. Why is that? Oh, we're using two or three times more water than in the rest of our portfolio. Why is that? And then you found a giant leak. That Those cases are just so common and such long, low hanging fruit to make a really big difference in, in climate change and sustainability. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. Fascinating. All right. So let's, let's kind of reflect on what has happened then after those three phases have taken into account. So we talked about where we were 15 years ago, but what are like, what are the way things are today that, that don't match the rest of the world. Right. And one of the things I'm thinking about here is you, you started to talk about how this was affecting all these different stakeholders. And it sounds like it's like at the contract level, Right. If I'm a JLL or CBRE managing a facility, or if I'm a contractor servicing a facility, it sounds like neighbors is affecting all like the core business of not just the landlord, it's affecting the core business of all the stakeholders that are serving that building. Am I right about that? Right. Yes. And I think that's one of the really fascinating things about the the kind of the Australian model in the last decade. I do think that it's not just neighbors. It's really about using neighbors to build a really big ecosystem with lots of drivers. But but you're totally right. It's actually gone way, way beyond just the sustainability team or even the operations team. And it's going to a lot like this really, really big bubble around those teams. And I think the the 
the best way to look at. So let's go one by one. I think facility managers are a fascinating case because facility managers work for an owner. So a company like CBRE and JLL, they might want to do a lot of those things. But if the owner is not on board, they actually can't really do a lot in sustainability with zero budget. And a lot of them today actually have neighbors star rating KPIs, as in you're taking a new contract for you know this building that is being operating at 4.5 stars, you need to maintain that as part of your contract. So whoever is going to go into that asset, energy performance and carbon performance is going to be a core part of the job. It's not going to be just a little side thing. And often a lot of these contracts have bonuses if you improve your ratings or even KPIs to improve these ratings, which means the management team also has this responsibility, not just to ram the asset as well as they can, but to improve it uh, along mm. the course of, of, of that lease. So the management profession has changed just deeply. And, and just to give you how, an, an idea of how deeply it is, um, the CEO of the Facility Management Association sits in, in, in our steering committee, which is the, the board that sort of governs our program. And he's a huge champion of Neighbors. And he talks about, you know, how influential Neighbors has been in really helping the facility management profession to be a really major driver of sustainability in Australia, instead of being just a, a passive player that that is secondary to other players in the sector. So that's that's facility managers. Obviously, owners, we talked about them before. They have lots and lots of KPIs, partly because of investment, partly because of tenant demand, and partly because these companies have, over those 15 years, they become like real, true leaders in sustainability. So if you look at things like GRESP today, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, I don't know if you may have noticed that in, in other countries, but we definitely noticed that in, in Australia, that every year they launch, obviously they rank over 1,000 property companies on, on, on their survey and, and you get a score. You know How are you doing against your peers in your region? How are you doing against the rest of the world? Ingress in the office market, it's been around for 10 years. Every year, the top companies being an Australian company, 10 years in a row. And Australia is actually a small country. It's less than 1% of the respondents to this survey are Australians. But the number one spot has been an Australian company every year. And that's already impressive on its own, but it could have been maybe one company with a very enlightened um, board and, and sustainability team. But reality is that hardly every in any year has been the same company. It's a different company every year. So there's Whoa. like six or seven Australian companies fighting every year for that number one spot. And I think that tells you it, not a lot about those companies, which are great, and, and we're really fortunate to work with them, but it tells you a lot about the Australian ecosystem or just how important sustainability has become, how many companies are really internalizing it and, and investing a lot to you know, compete. And we want to be more sustainable than any other company in this market and any other company in the world. And I think that is a, such a visible and, and, and simple example, especially because that service is not run in Australia. It's run from Europe, from Amsterdam, and almost every major portfolio you can think of in almost every region, it discloses their, their indicators in, in, in GRESP as well. By the way, it's the same situation in the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Often Australian companies are the number one in offices and, and retail as well. And, and again, I do think it's a sign of, of that ecosystem. And James, I'm not going to talk about a lot of the other players, but at a high level, just to see how deep this goes, it goes not only into investors, owners, and facility managers, it goes into a lot of mechanical contractors and HVAC companies and analytics. And the, the market for analytics in Australia is, is huge. There's, there's uh, probably as a proportion for its size, maybe the largest in, in the world. It's really big, given that Australia is a very small country, is you know not even half of California in size. And we've seen a lot of lawyers 
really coming into this space. So the leasing profession has a lot of these neighbors clauses and green leases that are constantly evolving around, you know, what's the best, what's best in practice in, 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 in energy performance. When we're talking about sustainable finance, Australia is perhaps the single country in the world with the most green bonds and sustainability linked bonds in the world as a proportion for its size. A lot of them are in, in the building sector because the building sector in Australia is by far, it's, it's the leading edge of sustainability across all sectors in, in, in the country. And so suddenly it's this like ecosystem of tens of thousands of people working around many different parts of sustainability and different parts of the equation. But a lot of that is powered by the fact that we have one star rating that is very simple and where the only way to get better is using less energy. And I think going back to all the way to the beginning, that design feature from somebody in 1997 has been so influential because it means that if you're using neighbors for anything, any drivers built around it, it means what you're really creating is a driver for using less. And that I think has been one of the, you know, one of the pillars of a lot of that transformation we've been seeing. So fascinating. The one thing we didn't talk about in, in terms of like the way things are now, I, I want to get to like the future of neighbors and like expansion to other regions the one thing we didn't talk about though is like the when I think about real estate, I think about the value of an asset, right? And I think maybe to summarize all the things we talked about, like buildings with higher neighbors ratings are worth more, it seems like, than buildings with lower rate neighbors ratings. And is there like statistics on that and published data? Yeah, there is. Um so much published data these days. So I'm going to tell you like four sources at a high level if, if people want to look into them, but there's a company called Real Investment Analytics that has been tracking neighbors ratings against financial performance for um, a lot of property companies for a decade every quarter. So it goes way back. You can see lots of trends on that. And more recently, we've seen Morgan Stanley, JLL, Knight Frank, all of them releasing their own versions of matching neighbors with the financial performance data that they have in their database, which are very big because uh, some of these companies are just really, really major players in the leasing space. And what we have seen is a really clear trend. A lot of these things we talked about before, those drivers about governments using the procurement power, uh, the shame on disclosure, investors being more willing to invest in companies doing more. A lot of those things are translating into the financials of buildings in a really, really strong way and in, in, in growing. So it's been bigger and bigger in the last few years. To give you a few examples, if you're in the office market, for example, you you have if you have a higher neighbor's energy rating, you have significantly longer leases on average. So, and that's one of the key indicators you look in, in offices. Well, how long is our leases, right? And if your leases expire on average very soon, you could have a lot of vacancies and that's a really big financial uh, risk in, indicator. So longer leases is actually really important. And, and uh, buildings with high neighbors ratings have longer leases, partly because the government is renting those and they rent for longer. And partly because a lot of companies now are doing the same thing that the governments, big banks, a lot of big portfolios are just saying, we are not gonna go into buildings that are not sustainable anymore. So longer leases, uh, we've also seen significantly lower vacancies in buildings with high neighbors ratings. And again, it's the same, it's the same driver. If there are less people in the market that are willing to go into an unsustainable building, then you will see higher vacancies on average. And we do see those very strongly. And all of those things, and by the way, there's more indicators, but they really aggregate into the value of the asset. So if you're selling a building, all else equal, you're selling a building with a high neighbors rating, you can get anywhere between 8% to 18% more for that asset 
with a higher Navis rating, all else equal. And in I say eight to 18%, because a lot of these studies have different methodologies. So you, you so it's sometimes a little bit hard to compare, but a lot of them go around that figure between 10% plus. In 10%, if you're selling a $300 million, you know, building office asset in the heart of Sydney or Melbourne, 300, 10% of $300 million is $30 million. Um, it is a lot more money than bringing that building into high performance is ever going to be. And it's such a powerful driver on its own. And because this, uh, this understandings of, uh, hey, higher sustainability performance is translating into things that are much, much bigger than the energy bills are ever going to be, we're actually seeing that becoming a driver on its own. We've seen lots of companies now going, we're going to go and buy poor performer buildings in this market, do them up and improve them in all the course of two, two three years. And then we're going to sell them for 10% more a few years later. And we're going to make a you know a 400% return on, on that investment. There's actually quite a few companies doing that now as well. It really is becoming this snowball of drivers that reinforce each other in this mesh of lots of drivers. So many that it's actually really hard to track them all. So there's lots of drivers that are per- happening in the market right now that not even I know about them because there's just so many and, and so disaggregated that it's just really difficult to, um, to, to track them all. Wow. This makes me so excited. It is really yeah. exciting. You know what, James? I think the, the, it may be just to add a, a caveat into a lot of this. So we have been able to do this in a few sectors at this scale, like driving this kind of change. And to me, that is, it, it's exciting because a lot of this change happened, you know, last decade with last decade's technology and expertise and costs. So we're actually in a much better place now to do it, you know, something like that this decade across most building sectors in most countries. But the key really is about creating an indicator that rewards the right thing, which is reducing energy use, uh, and then creating a lot of these drivers around it. It doesn't happen on its own. It's not just a rating tool. The, the, the linking of those indicators to the right tools is really important. And it's, uh, it's why it's so important. We're at a point, for example, in, in, in spaces like, like sustainable finance, where there's a lot of things going on, but a lot of the indicators are not quite there yet, or, or everyone chooses their own indicator. So we have the driver is there, but we haven't linked it very well to, we want this driver to drive the right behavior, not just to drive greenwashing. And at the moment is, you see a lot of green bonds that are very green and a lot of green bonds that are just marketing. And it's very different to difficult to tell them apart. And a lot of our, our GeoBalancy program and also with a lot of people in this space around the world is how do we channel that into the right metrics? So we you know, use that force as a force for good in climate change instead of us having you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of media releases, but uh, you know, we're not making the planet any safer. Uh, because we're not really reducing or accelerating our, our trend towards using and uh, producing less emissions. I do, I'm really hopeful in that space. I do think that we have really great metrics in a lot of countries. It's not just neighbors. Um, and in Australia, we are actually working on a sustainable finance framework ourselves to be able to, you know, if you have neighbors ratings, how do you use them in really credible ways to be able to, you know, get all the recognition that you want when you're doing a green loan, but also to help us really accelerate the, the trajectory of Australia reducing its emissions in the built environment. Really cool. So that's like one of the next phases here then? A hundred percent. It's definitely something we're working really actively on at the moment. Cool. How about expansion into other countries? So the one thing when I'm listening to you this whole time, and I'm like 
smiling ear to ear for those of you that are listening on just audio. But the one thing I'm thinking this whole time is like, why aren't other countries doing this? And I know that our other countries are doing this, but like not like this, I guess is how I would put it. And it obviously hasn't had the market transformation yet. Like if I think about the US, we've had lots and lots of great city programs get passed and several states have done so as well. But is the market transformed? I don't think so at this point, right? And so one, I guess I want to hear from you broadly on expansion. Like how does this model get expanded into the rest of the world? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we need this transformation to happen every building down to my new house I'm sitting in right now, right? I'll gladly participate in the city doing this to my home, right? And then I want to hear about how neighbors, like is this actual program getting expanded to other places? Right. I think the the topic about how do you drive transformation across uh, whole markets is a, is a is a tricky one. I think and I think the US is a is a really great case of how different conditions on on how the country structure or the size of the country or or sometimes politics can actually really influence what are the options that you have at hand. Then one thing that we have been really fortunate is, and this has got nothing to do with neighbors, is that Australia is a relatively small country. 25 million people is not that big. And because of that, and, and also we, because neighbors were so early, we were able to create something national way before the states were actually creating their own separate sort of splinter initiatives. So we have this like unified country and governments working together using one scheme that is the same for every city and every country. If you're a property company in five different states, it's the same thing. You don't have to like work out different tools. And so that gives it, it means that the scheme is low cost, a lot easier for people to know how it works because it works everywhere in the same way. And that is something that we've been really fortunate to have. That is very difficult to do in a country like the United States, if, you know, let alone just, just because of population alone, that's very difficult to do such a big country. And obviously, all the states are not on the same page in terms of action. There's, there's significant disparities with uh, some states like California leading the world in so many things. And, but also a lot of states you know, not willing or being able to move at the same speed. The difference in speeds in Australia is a lot smaller. So we always have a state or two that are leading you know, every few years on different topics, but they're never all that far ahead from the other states uh, mm-hmm. because the other states want to catch up relatively quickly. And I think that uh, that environment is really facilitates things like, let's have one national disclosure scheme that applies everywhere the same. All the companies get hit in the same way. All the markets receive the same information and companies that are, you know, a very, very progressive sustainability, ambitious sustainability manager that happens to work in, in Melbourne, but it has a portfolio across four states, that person can drive change across four states mm-hmm. because it's the same framework across the market. And I think that's something that we don't talk uh, enough. And this is, you know, the non-sexy side of sustainability, it's things like governance and, and stability. Um, we get requests about you know, neighbors should change the star rating and bring the, the, the average to the middle of three stars. And we, every now and then we get a comment like that. And in theory, if, you were, if your goal was just to create the most beautiful, most perfect rating tool, you probably do that you know, every year. But what we're trying to do is to create a, a rating tool where people can look forward and just plan for a great transformation 
over time. And to do that, we just realized we actually need to give them certainty. And so that is a lot of the things that we do in the program is about how do we create a really stable, the, the, the measurement being really stable. And, and so people can take the risk, not on the rating tool, take the risk on the building. Like how do we, I want to say the 70% target reduction by 2030 of energy consumption. That's difficult. That's difficult enough. Let's focus all the risk on, on, on the improvement of buildings instead of just switching metrics, which really paralyzes everybody. And so when I look at the, a lot of the schemes that are, that are popping up in, in the United States in, at the city level, on the one hand, am I, I think it's great. And if I was, you know, the, the, the head of sustainability in one of those cities is probably exactly what I will do because that is the lever you have because creating something national is incredibly difficult in 2021. But if you can create things that are go beyond the city, you do get the benefits of stability, long, you know, long-term decision-making and people who are making a difference in their city and portfolios, as you know, are not based on one city hardly ever most of them are in multiple places and a lot of them are in multiple states in the in the united states so you, if you have the same policies a really ambitious portfolio can make a difference in a lot of places and what they're doing is creating you know the market for transformation they're creating the services that a lot of other companies are going to need to improve they are training the mechanical contractors on how to, you know, get buildings to six stars in neighbors, maybe, you know, 98 on, on the energy, on the energy star scale, you're uh, helping create demand for the analytics products to get real time information or uh, more efficient chilies and, and boilers and heat pumps. And so that to me is, is just really important in climate change. The more stability we can create in the way we measure and the more a, a territory or cities and states that can apply, I think is something that can make a huge difference. So I know that I'm going a little bit away from, from your question, James. Uh, you were you know, really asking about how to, how to drive a lot of this change. Beyond that, I think it's the second component, which is we really need to focus on not just creating rating tools, but on the drivers. And we came to that conclusion quite a few years ago in Neighbors, by the time when I joined, that's you know, 12 years ago, and is that we need to spend, allocate, a lot of time to working with policymakers or integrating neighbors with GRESP, the, the GRESP survey, or uh, creating a sustainable finance framework for neighbors. So if somebody's doing a loan, they can do use neighbors really easily and get a more credible loan. Can we make that easy? A lot of those linkages, you really see the accumulated effect over time. Mm. Uh, and often in sustainability, and you see this in all countries, so much of the focus is on the rating tool. We need to create a rating tool. We need to improve the rating tool. And we think that all the change is gonna happen magically from that. But a rating tool is just a rating tool. A rating tool doesn't drive any change. What drives change is the drivers that you can create because you have a really good rating tool. And I do think that that space needs, could use a lot more work and a lot more you know, minds thinking about how do we create the next wave of, of incentives. And I do think that that's maybe the space where we can, we can contribute the most as a program is just on, coming to podcasts like this one and sharing the, you know, how we've been able to create some of those drivers. A lot of them are not going to work in, in other countries and some of them will. And I think just sharing those stories can really enable, you know, other people in other regions to, to be able to create their own version of the government leasing policy or their own version of, of disclosure. And likewise, we're always looking for ideas from other countries because, you know, we have 20, 30 years to address climate change. And it means that we have to be willing to share 
as much as we can share very quickly. And we need to be actively looking for good ideas from everywhere because we don't, we don't have time to mess around. And if we need to move really fast, you need to just open your ears and your eyes, share everything and just take as many good ideas as you can and bring them back home. Cool. Is there a place online where all of the rating systems nerds congregate? Like, is there like one place where the news happens? I, I don't think so, but I'd love to. I think we should probably create that, but I don't think that there might be a website out there. If there is, I'm not very familiar with it, but I can tell you that if you're really interested in a lot of this data, or a lot of the stories, the Neighbors website has lots of things, including we invested a lot into um, how do we make, not just like you can download all this data, but you can also, uh, we have a, 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 a a search engine for green buildings, I think is maybe the best way to, to look at it, hmm. um, where you can search for thousands of buildings in a database where they're located. And it's actually the, the second most visited page on our website. It's like thousands of people go there every month. And we've actually seen, this is a fascinating about sharing data that is easily communicated, that a lot of people can understand, not just, not just engineers, um, and making it public is that we've seen a lot of banks, for example, going in there and say, um, Hey, four stars doesn't look as good. This look at all these four stars here. I think the you know why can't you aim for six stars? There's already three in your own street, and I think that is the kind of things that we can see a little more. So if you if you're looking at this and you're really into data and visualization and just great stories about market transformation, there's a lot of that on the neighbors website, and we actually have cool. this um, annual report, James, that. Again, it's one of the most visited pages on our website, which is, you never hear that about annual reports. Nobody wants to read annual reports, uh, but our annual report is 70% uh, live dashboards about what happened last year. So a lot of people go in there to know, you know, where's my building located against the market in, in a COVID year? What happened in COVID buildings using less energy, more energy? Is it the same in offices and shopping centers? A lot of people go in there and go, oh, okay, well, offices um, were very impacted on the tenancy side but not so impacted on the building owner side. And, you know, shopping centers, a lot of them continue to operate because they have supermarkets. So you can see a lot of that in the data. And so if you're into a lot of that, our annual report is just a goldmine for uh, information and, and dashboards. Very cool. Anything else that's that's next for, for neighbors before we wrap up? I think at a high level, we are working on two fronts. Uh, number one is that we're expanding neighbors to all building sectors. And I mentioned that a little while early, earlier. So we are expanding to a lot of the sectors of neighbors. It's not in just yet. And the goal really is to cover the majority of the economy that operates around buildings, right? That's that's really what we're trying to do as a program. At the same time, we're also working on expanding the scope of neighbors. And I think the, the most salient part of that is, is embodied carbon, which by the way, you had um, a great podcast on last week. Uh, so we are looking into creating an embodied carbon and certification framework within Neighbors. Um, and the reason why we want to do that is because we think that we can do what we have done in operation in, in buildings, do that in embodied carbon in the sense that we can create a, a, a single national well-running framework for embodied carbon. And as, as you may know, a lot of the issues in embodied carbon is that Everyone has their own methodologies. There's lots and lots and lots of methods, ways of measuring databases, benchmarks, 
So comparing buildings in the market is really difficult. And if you can't do that, it's really difficult to create a lot of drivers around. So it's creating a national framework that is consistently applied across uh, the, the whole country and with really, really high quality benchmarks. That's really the thing that we do best is to collect a lot of data, to create really high quality benchmarks to compare buildings. And that's something we're working on right now. And the goal is to have a, you know, a, a, a release uh, within the next uh, 18 months. Or so. And that's going to keep us really busy because it's a... It is the same, a lot of the same stakeholders we've been working before, but it's a completely different area, a new area for us. And as you, if anyone's listening to this podcast, you see how complex it is. It's a complex space with a lot of moving parts. And so that's something we're working very actively on. The other area we're working on at the moment is, is internationally. We're working with uh, quite a few people overseas to help them create programs, initiatives uh, like Neighbors, and also for us to learn from the, the, a lot of the breakthroughs that they've been having and, uh, themselves. And the, the two highest profile examples I have is that Neighbors is already operating in New Zealand. Uh, it's run by the New Zealand government, and it's, uh, it's going great guns in, in, in New Zealand, and we work really closely with them. And Neighbors was also launched recently in, in the United Kingdom, which is also also really exciting. It's a very early days. I think the, the scheme has only been open for certification for you know a few weeks. And so we're probably going to see the first uh, participants in, in the scheme coming in, in early in 2022. But again, to me, a lot of these uh, initiatives are about, you know, how do we how do we help other people to to create initiatives like this internationally? And how do we better connect the sustain, building sustainability markets in different countries. It's really stuck in when you work uh, across uh, cultures or regions, you go to another country and you realize, oh my God, this country, same, same sector is really leading on these three things and is really trailing on these three things. And nobody realizes unless you've actually traveled and work in another country for long enough to go, oh, wow, we could just take these three products that have existed there for like five years and we could really sell these three products to this market because there's not that many providers of that. I think we can do a lot more to create highways for building sustainability uh, business and IP and opportunities to flow a lot more seemingly. And, and I think creating schemes like Neighbors really helps with that because if you have a technology or expertise uh, that is going to help a building reduce energy consumption a lot, then, you know, you can really, you can use these initiatives to say, well, I've brought five buildings to five stars in neighbors in Australia. I can do that with yours uh, in London or in Paris or in Washington. And I think that is something that we need to do. If we want to meet all this, uh, these targets that we're having climate change, which are overwhelmingly difficult and, and challenging and short time frame, we need to actively look for opportunities. So the companies that are doing great work and creating great IP can actually share that with other countries a lot more easily. So part of part of the reason why we're doing this is to, you know, this is one way in which we can create those opportunities, not the only one, but it certainly helps. And we're actually seeing that in the UK already. In Australia, we were because we're so close to each other, a lot of companies already work between Australia and New Zealand. And sometimes the headquarters are in Auckland and New Zealand and sometimes they're in Sydney. And but a lot of companies kind of very fluently work across the two markets. It's not the same in the UK because it's in literally in the other side of the world from Australia. Um, but we have seen a lot of mixed teams uh, working on neighbors ratings now and working on building design as well, where they go, yes, we're going to have a, a, a the leading design team is going to be in the UK, but we're going to get a designer from Australia and sometimes the same company to actually join the team and be part of that team so we can bring you know, lessons from that market into this project or the other way around as well. And 
this project hasn't been on the ground for that long. And we've already seen lots and lots of cases of that, of mutual collaboration and participation, uh, which is exactly the kind of things that we wanted to drive. So it's really exciting to see. That's so cool. That same thing is happening within the Nexus community on such a smaller scale. And it's just so amazing to see it happen. Um, thank you, internet. And thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Indeed. All right. Ready to close out with a little, little two truths and a lie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I am right excited about this, James. So <laughs> okay. I got three for you. So number one, I traveled to Europe for two months paying no accommodation, no transport. That's number one. Um, number two is uh, I studied in Sweden and I can speak medium level Swedish. That's number two. And number three is I got married in a performance arts theater made entirely by timber. Those are my three. Two of them are true, I believe. Wow. Can to repeat them? Tough. Two months in Europe with no money. Um, uh, speak medium level Swedish. Got married in a theater. All right. I say Swedish. Swedish is the lie. That's very good. Yeah. And to be honest, I did study in Sweden and I really wanted to learn Swedish, but it's so hard to learn the local language in a country yeah. where everybody speaks English and really good in yeah. everybody. Like the, a, a, a young girl in the street who's seven speaks English. A, the, an old lady working at a, a supermarket speaks uh, English, all of them. So I tried for a few months and then I sort of gave up. It was impossible. I don't know if that's why I guessed that because my subconscious may have made that connection, but I just guessed. But yeah, I do have, well, several, a... we do have several pro members, Nexus pro members that are from Sweden and they speak English. And then I see their LinkedIn posts and I'm like, what is that language when they write in Swedish? <laughs> uh, yeah. That doesn't look easy to learn at all. <laughs> it, is, uh, uh, it, is, it is not, but I'll tell you what it is beautiful country to visit and to live in full of just uh, just really kind people it's just really kind society um, yeah. and i really love that you know being there for a little while especially coming from south america in a developing country i was there on a scholarship which explains why i traveled for two months by just okay. uh, hitchhiking and, and couch surfing but it's, it's such a just kind society where a lot of people care about the environment it has its own challenges like every country but it's, it's just a really good perspective in life. And you go, you know, a lot of these issues that we think are unresolvable socially, they do have solutions. And a lot of these issues around the environment and climate, actually, we can build societies where the majority of people really care about that and are acting on that. And I do think that a lot of the Scandinavian countries have been, you know, leading in some areas and particularly on the environment and care for it. And I do think that's very admirable. Well, that's a good, great place to end end our, our show here. So thanks so much, Carlos. This has been fascinating and it has made me happier. It's been my day better. So I appreciate it. Thanks, James. I had a lot of fun and thanks for having me. It's seven in the morning in Sydney. I was like, I haven't even had a coffee yet. And I just really appreciate it. I love uh, your podcast. I think it's just playing such a big, important role in, in our space. And like, and like I told you before, I really admire people who can find a way to communicate really clearly on a topic that can be really inaccessible for a lot of people. And I do think that you do that great. And a lot of people who you've been, who've been in, in your podcast have been just really inspiring to, to, to listen to. So, you know, keep it up and thanks so much for your service. 
Well, thanks for, thanks for coming on and being one of the people that is so good at communicating. So talk to you soon. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.